Every commandment of God, every commandment, is an invitation to blessing and reward. And those who obey the commandment discover that firsthand. Those who don't obey the commandment forfeit the blessing and forfeit the reward. And I want to consider today one powerful example of that reality. I want to consider a very strategic command and the guaranteed blessings that flow to those who obey it. The command is found in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter, portions of the first three verses. Paul said to the church, not to society at large, but to the church, walk in a manner worthy, worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then a passage, one of many, that lists the guaranteed blessings of obedience to that command is found in the Old Testament. It's Psalm 133, the first three verses. David wrote, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. I've entitled today's teaching, The Blessing. And since I want you to remember those two words, I've asked a well-known character to repeat them for me. The Blessing. Now you'll remember the title. And now let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, today we are going to focus upon the blessing that is guaranteed for those who obey your command. We want to be numbered among the obedient and the blessed. And not primarily for our sakes, but for your honor, and for the sake of our witness to broken humanity. So today I pray that your spirit would empower me to teach. I can't do that on my own. I pray that your spirit would empower us to understand and apply. We can't do that on our own. And I pray that you would help us to see our next step of growth as we follow Jesus. And I pray that in his great name. Amen. And amen. And as we study God's Word together this morning, may the Lord be with you. I don't know if you've noticed this, but some of the most strategic commands in Scripture are also the most frequently neglected and frequently violated. And the commandment to preserve the unity of the Spirit is a case in point. And it should come as no surprise that it's frequently violated or neglected. You see, Satan recognizes the vital importance of unity in the body of Christ. 
And so anytime people read God's commands to preserve unity, to embrace unity, to value unity, Satan is there to peddle the lie that any attempt to cross ethnic borders and political borders and national borders and economic borders is only going to end in frustration. It's a fool's errand. It's impractical. It'll only lead to regret. And the sad reality is many times when he's selling those lies, it's not a hard sell because his pitch appeals to our pride to our insecurity, to our fears. It resonates with our desire to be affirmed rather than be challenged. And it's enhanced by the corrosive influence of our increasingly polarized and tribal culture. All of those things influencing us sometimes make us willing buyers for the lies that Satan is peddling. Now, before we consider why this command is so strategic, before we consider the great blessings that come with obedience, we need to define the unity of the Spirit. We need to define it because the unity of the Spirit is a unique reality. No other form of unity compares to the unity of the Spirit. And the unity of the Spirit is only found in one place, inside God's kingdom, in the hearts of God's people. So here's the definition I'd like to suggest to you. The unity of the Spirit is the holy, spiritual connection created by God's Spirit and shared by Jesus' followers. No one else is involved in creating it, and no one else can participate in it. Now, I chose my adjectives carefully. I chose the word holy because not all unity is holy. Not all unity is blessed of God. I would remind you that the leaders of Rome and the corrupt religious leaders of Jerusalem were united in their opposition to Jesus. That was not a holy unity. And we know from prophetic scripture, one day the unbelieving world will unite under a counterfeit Christ known as the Antichrist. And that will be man's final and ultimate rebellion against his creator. That will not be a holy unity. That will be an unholy unity. The unity of the spirit is holy. I use the word spiritual because this unity is something that exists within our souls. And it exists independent of all the surface differences that we may have between us. And I chose the word created because this unity cannot be produced by human effort, by human legislation, by human education, by humanity's best efforts, and we don't come by it naturally. It can only be generated by God and only in the hearts of those who have been born again by the Spirit of God. That's why God does not call us to create the unity of the Spirit. He simply calls us to preserve it, to protect it in our attitude and in our practice. Now, why do I say this particular command is strategic? Good reason. Because Jesus said it's strategic. 
The longest recorded of prayer of Jesus is found in John chapter 17. And if you've read Jesus' longest recorded prayer, you know he devotes a lot of time to praying for the unity of God's people. And in that prayer, Jesus made it clear that the practice of unity somehow helps the world believe that he was sent from God, that he is indeed the Messiah for the human race. Now, Jesus didn't tell us how that all plays out. We probably wouldn't grasp it if he had. But I would like to suggest perhaps it owes to the fact that Nobody can come to faith in Christ unless the Spirit of God draws them, unless the Spirit of God convinces and convicts them. And when the people of God are not preserving unity, the work of the Spirit of God is quenched. It's hindered. And the Spirit of God is grieved. But whatever the reason for the tie between unity and people recognizing Jesus as Lord, the first blessing of practiced unity is knowing that we are the answer to Jesus' prayer. And the second is knowing that our unity draws people to Jesus. And both of those are rewarding in and of themselves. How many prayers has Jesus answered on your behalf? Don't you think we owe him one? <laughs> See, there's only one prayer of Jesus in Scripture that we can answer. And this is the prayer. When he prayed, Lord, I pray that our, my people would be one as the Father and the Son and, I, and the Spirit are one. That's the prayer that we can answer. And knowing you're answering Jesus' prayer is rewarding in and of itself. But beyond that, nothing is more rewarding in life than knowing that your obedience has resulted in somebody coming to faith in Christ that it has changed the eternal destiny of other people. Because if you love Jesus, you want other people to love Jesus. If you know Jesus, you want other people to know Jesus. And when we preserve the unity of the Spirit, we answer Jesus' prayer, and more people are going to be convinced that he is Lord. But, sounding like an infomercial, it doesn't stop there. There's more. And Psalm 133 tells us, about additional blessings. Psalm 133 was written by David after a long civil war in his nation that sadly was led by his own son. His son led the opposition against his throne. And when that war was over, David watched people who for years had cursed one another and murdered one another streaming together into Jerusalem singing the praises of God, and carrying worship banners instead of swords and shields. And as David watched that marvelous sight unfolding, he wrote these words, Behold! In the Hebrew, it's a strong word. It literally means, take a look at this. And in the Hebrew, it indicates God calling attention to something that is worthy of attention because it's something rare. It's something you don't see every day. 
And God was calling attention to what? To unity among brothers and sisters. And so the next blessing is that God calls attention to those who preserve unity. Why is that important? Well, it's not because we're seeking attention, like the perpetually insecure. It's because we are commanded to let our good works be seen by unbelieving men and women as a way of persuading them of the goodness of God, of the glory of God. Let your good works be seen by men so that they might glorify your Father. See, we're not called to be secret disciples because if your discipleship doesn't destroy your secrecy, your secrecy will destroy your discipleship. We are called to do the works of God in a way that they can be seen by lost humanity. And when you're walking in unity, God calls attention to what you're doing. And the world takes you more seriously because unity is not something that is seen every day. David went on. He said, behold, how good. Once again, the English translation fails to capture the power of the word because the word good in the Hebrew not only means something that's acceptable to God, something that's moral, something that's profitable, it literally means spiritual maturity. Behold how mature it is when brothers dwell in unity. So practiced unity will advance your spiritual maturity. Those who separate themselves from other believers because they believe they possess greater maturity only end up separating themselves from maturity. If you're praying, Lord, help me to grow in my faith, help me to grow in grace and in my knowledge of you, you've also got to be working at promoting and preserving the unity of the Spirit. Because if you aren't, there is a glass ceiling to your maturity. You'll only go so far. Your disobedience will limit your horizons. In, on Easter Sunday this year, we're going to be opening the doors of our new church plant in Homestead. And I want to take this moment to remind you that we are not establishing a church in Homestead because we believe nobody is preaching the gospel in Homestead. That kind of thinking is an insult to our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been ministering there for years, and it's indicative of an ungodly arrogance. Churches that plant churches in communities because they feel like God won't be there till they get there I don't know what they're smoking, but they need a new drug. <laughs> and churches that begin with that mindset are destined to eventually crumble. And here's why. You can't build an enduring work of God on a foundation of sand. And human arrogance and human elitism and only us exclusivity is sand. The weakness of the foundation may not show immediately, but it will eventually become apparent. 
because nobody ever became a mature believer by shunning the unity of the Spirit. And when a congregation starts by shunning the unity of the Spirit, they have made it a reality that they will never move on to maturity. If you want to be a mature follower of Christ, you've got to be involved in preserving unity, authentic unity. Now, why do I say authentic? Because not all unity is authentic. Not all unity is holy, and not all unity is authentic. Any unity that demands those different than us do things our way is bogus. Let me say that again. Any unity that demands those different than us do things our way is bogus. And here's why. Because unity isn't uniformity. It's unity that the Spirit creates, not uniformity. In a congregation practicing unity, we don't ask each other to surrender our identity. We're not threatened by our differences. We value them and we embrace them. You see, when one group in a congregation makes doing things their way a condition for being a part of that congregation, that's not unity. That's assimilation. That's an effort to make other people like yourself. And assimilation is a demonic counterfeit of unity. And it is also a huge insult because it suggests my way is the better way. David went on to liken the blessings of unity to anointing oil. We read in the Old Testament that when Aaron was anointed to be high priest, they poured scented oil over his head. That ceremony was symbolic. It was meant to say the Spirit of God was going to be poured out upon him, giving him power, giving him wisdom, equipping him for his calling. So all throughout Scripture, the pouring of oil is symbolic of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But David said, remember, the oil didn't stay on Aaron's head. It flowed to his beard, and then it flowed onto his garments and down to the very edge of his robes. Now, he was painting a symbolic picture. Let me suggest some of the symbolism. We know that Christ is the head of the church. So unity, preserved unity, flows out of love for Christ. It flows out of our love for Jesus. You will not be able to protect and preserve the unity of the Spirit just out of humanitarian motivations or altruistic motivations and certainly not out of political motivations. Your motivation must be an uncompromised love for Jesus. If you love Jesus, you love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves the unity of his people and prays for it. For that reason, going back to church planting, we should never embrace the unity of the Spirit as a strategy to attract people. Now, we've already said where believers walk in unity, God will attract people to them. But we should never use unity as a strategy to draw people because to value unity solely for its benefits is to commit idolatry. 
That's a powerful statement. Let me unpack it. When you substitute anyone or anything for God, that's idolatry. When your motivation to preserve unity is what you might get out of it, rather than loving and pleasing God himself, that's a very subtle form of idolatry. Here's a crude analogy. If a man buys wonderful gifts for his wife simply to curry sexual favor, it is not his wife that he loves, it is himself. I think you would agree, wouldn't you? And his allegiance isn't to his wife, his allegiance is to his own interests. And you see, when we preserve and protect and pursue unity, because we think, well, that'll bring people our way. That'll help us grow the church. We're putting growth ahead of Jesus himself. So it's a subtle form of idolatry, but the subtle forms are always the most dangerous. There's something else tucked inside of David's description. It tells us that once the blessings of unity are unleashed, they spread, and they spread without our permission. The blessings of unity touch those who don't even embrace unity. See, if you're part of an assembly that is preserving the unity of the Spirit, you will be blessed by the commanded blessing of God, even though you may not be participating in that unity, even though you may not value that unity, even if you barely tolerate that unity. I, I don't live in an imaginary world. I have never assumed that the thousands of men and women who come here are all equally passionate about preserving the unity of the Spirit. I have no doubt some just tolerate it because they like other things about ACAC. But whether they realize it or not, they're being blessed because of those who are obeying God's command. But here's what I want to remind you of. You may be blessed by somebody else's obedience, but you'll never be rewarded for it. You don't want to go through life parking on somebody else's dollar. At the judgment seat of Christ, you want reward. You don't want God to say, well, you were blessed because of other people's obedience, but I didn't see a whole lot from you. So don't tolerate our diversity. Cherish it. David said the oil touches the robe. Have you noticed often in Scripture God uses clothing analogies to talk about our character and our lifestyle? Put on, put off, keep your garments unspotted. Well, our physical garments are what we use to cover ourselves and present ourselves to society. Your garments say something about your identity and your culture and your priorities. So do your spiritual garments. They say something about your values. They say something about your priorities. They say something about who you're trying to please and who's really in charge of your life. All that to say if we aren't vigilant, culture will determine our wardrobe. Culture has a great influence upon our physical garments. We're not dressed in robes today. Culture can also have a great influence, an unwelcomed influence, upon your spiritual garments. That's why I've been sounding the warning, and will continue to do so, that as this culture grows increasingly polarized and tribal, 
We, as the people of God, have got to be certain that we don't let them determine our wardrobe. That we don't become a pale reflection of a polarized world. And finally, David said, the effects of unity are like the cool air that descends from Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is located in the midst of an arid desert. But the cool air that comes down from the peak of that mountain when it meets the hot, dry air at the base of the mountain produces a very heavy dew that keeps the land around the mountain saturated, deeply saturated, even in times of drought. Lush gardens grow there. Springs and wells offer cool water there. In the same way, where the unity of the Spirit is preserved, there is a refreshing that comes from God, a refreshing of our souls that goes far deeper than political correctness or self-congratulating displays. What did you do about unity? I was in a march once. <clears throat> wow. You see, in ways we don't fully grasp, unity refreshes our spirits through the differing perspectives of those who are different than us. Let me explain what I mean in closing. Many times we think we need a change in our circumstances when what we really need is a different perspective on our circumstances. Which is why God doesn't answer our prayers, oh God, change my circumstances. Because right? he knows in a short while you'd be right back in the same mess. It's not a new circumstance you need, it's a new perspective. Well, as you preserve the unity of the Spirit, as you experience community with people whose life experience is different than yours, with people whose daily reality is different than yours, with people whose ethnicity, economy, and politic is different than yours, they offer you new, larger windows into what is happening in your own soul. Because if you only view what's happening in your soul through the tiny portal of yourself, you're going to miss much of what God is up to. People different than you give you new windows, bigger windows, new perspectives. And those change your perspective and those bring the joy of the Lord where previously all you have known is disappointment. I'm preaching this this weekend because I think it's going to be increasingly strategic and yet increasingly difficult to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So I've shared openly with you, leading up to and following the last presidential election, we watched some people leave ACAC because we weren't Republican enough Democrat enough, white enough, black enough, fill in the blank. But they obviously didn't value the unity of the Spirit in the diversity of God's people. And that's okay. May they be blessed. But they're not going to set our agenda. And, and, and when we talk about the increasing temptation to be polarized, remember the problem isn't just out there. It's also in our souls. The enemies of unity can be found lurking in the shadows of our own fears, our own insecurities, our own selfishness, and our own pride. Historians and sociologists tell us 
that the more insecure people feel about their circumstances and their future, the more they want to go tribal, the more they want to hunker down with their own people. And I simply want to remind you today that God wants you to hunker down with your own people. But your own people includes everybody who names the name of Jesus. My own people, my own people are Republican and Democrat, conservative and liberal, Hispanic and Asian and black and white, if they name the name of Jesus. Those are our own people. And that reality can't just exist within the pages of Scripture. It has to exist within a faith community because then and only then will the world see Jesus is the real deal. Let's pray together. After each service, even though our teaching is designed for followers of Jesus, I like to give opportunity for those who aren't yet followers of Jesus to make that life-changing decision. I haven't preached what some would call the gospel, how to come to faith in Jesus today, but the gospel is implied in any preaching of God's Word. And if the Spirit of God has been pursuing you and drawing your heart, and you feel that you've come to the point where you're ready to respond, right there where you are in the quietness of your heart, if you'll ask Jesus to be your Messiah, if you'll ask Him to change your character, change your heart, and transform you into what you were intended to be, He will quickly honor that request because He died to make it possible. Father, as we live in a fractured world, a fracturing that ultimately will set the stage for the great and final deception. I pray that we will offer the world a clear alternative to hate and suspicion and bitterness and division. I pray that we will show the world the beautiful unity of the Spirit that God creates within his people. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.